0: Shalom, this is Gad Dishi, and welcome to, to Tanakhstudy.org. Today we're going to be studying the beginning of Parashat Toledot, Sefer, Bereshit, Pech Kafhei, Yud Tet, till the end of the Perek, Pesuk Our unit is going to serve as a closure to the cycle of the Abraham stories, as well as the beginning of the Jacob cycle, as set out by Michael Fishbane in Text and Texture. Uh, We'll be introduced to a number of themes, the theme of uh, one of them that we've already seen throughout Sefer Bereshit in regards to primogeniture, the firstborn, the ideas of struggles at childbirth, birth, uh, the themes of deception and fertility that will be playing themselves out throughout the Parashat Toledot and the remainder of the Jacob cycle. Uh, We begin with Ve'ele Toledot Yitzchak ben Avraham. Avraham holid et Yitzchak, and these are the genealogies of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. Avraham begat Yitzchak. We begin with the Vav We're connecting to the previous section uh, that was the end of Chalashat Chayasara, which was Ve'ele Toledot Yismael ben Avraham. And now we get Ve'ele Toledot Yitzchak ben Avraham. So these are closing out the genealogies of Avraham uh, by giving us what the uh, children are of Yishmael. And now we're anticipating hearing about the children of Yitzchak. Uh, in Yishmael, the Pasuk stresses Mitzrit, It's the side of his mother which is predominant. Whereas by Yitzchak, it's Avraham, Holidet Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the one who is going to be carrying out the uh, covenant that was between God and Avraham. It's going to be the idea of transmission. Uh, the entire challenge of how Yitzchak will be able to follow in the footsteps of his great father, the trailblazer, and what role will he have in setting out his own uh, stakes to the covenant, that he'll be able to also serve as one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And Yitzchak was 40 years old, when he took Rivka, the daughter of Betuel the Aramean, from Padanaram, the sister of Levan the Aramean, to him for a wife. So Yitzchak is 40 years old when he gets married. Uh, that's when the uh, Ebed of Abraham comes back with Rivka, uh, when uh, Yitzchak is 40 years old. The identity of Rivka herself, is, she is not identified as an Aramean her father is and her brother is and the place where they come from is Aram but uh, Rifka it seems to be the text is distancing Rifka from being Aramean uh, it might be a plus, it might be a minus but the uh, actual idea of Arami and Ramai uh, that wordplay uh, does come to mind especially when we take into account what will later transpire in regards to Levan uh, in his home when Yaakov is going to be duped to marrying Leah instead of Rachel. And therefore, even though we are still early in the story, there are certain seeds uh, that the text is hinting at in regards to whether or not Rivka herself is going to have any elements of deceit, of trickery that she may have learned in her family's home. Uh, Will she be able to use those tools uh, of the trade in other contexts, and will it be a positive or a negative Uh, action that will be undertaken. Uh, I should point out that, uh, as Robert Alter states, the beginning of this parasha uh, gives us the false impression that we're having an actual symmetry with the previous paragraph uh, about Ishmael, where we see that Ishmael has his list of genealogies. Uh, However, the verse that follows the opener for Ishmael gives us what we're expecting, So the text lists for us the names of the children of Yishmael, starting with who the Bechor is. And in this situation, though, uh, when we come to Yitzchak, we don't have, these are the names of the children of Yitzchak, the Bechor of Yitzchak is. Instead, we are given the story Uh, that basically retards the uh, continuation of the tale, and we're not able to see whether or not uh, we have uh, children. In fact, the story is going to develop into one where uh, we're dealing with someone who's barren, Yurif Khan is going to be barren, and therefore we also don't know who, from the children, once they're born, who is the firstborn. And therefore we don't get this symmetry that we're looking for with the genealogies of Yishmael, and it's the beginning of the parasha, Ve'ele todot Yitzchak ben Avraham, and the curious continuation thereof, uh, that allows us to take note that we are in a situation which is uh, abnormal, in the sense that we are expecting the blessings of Avraham to come true, and to come through Yitzchak, and to have many children, and yet we're met with disappointment and difficulties. And Yitzchak pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife Rivkah, and before she was barren, and God uh, listened to his petition, and Rivka became pregnant. And Yitro the and the children were racing around within her could be a strong form of roots or it could also be to destroy, to pulverize the children were literally struggling within her and she said, if so, why am I? and this saying could have been something that she said to herself she could have mentioned it to other women, to see whether or not this is something that is uh, the normal course of action during the pregnancy uh, being that she was barren, she never experienced this before uh, but however, uh, she is expressing some sense of uh, bewilderment, some sense of uh, uh, of the uh, idea she has no hope, she doesn't know what to do with herself and, and she goes to seek out God it could be that she went to her designated place of prayer where she had been praying, apparently, when she was still barren. Uh, and there's where she sought out God. It could be that, as Rashi points out, maybe she went to Bet Midrash of Shem, that she was uh, seeking out God. She went to the Bet Midrash of Shem to hear what, through a nevoah uh, what it is that God wants of her. Uh, it also could be that uh, uh, she went to seek God from anyone else who would be considered uh, a Navi. Uh, the uh, that Meqra brings down that the, she did not have gone to Avraham, she didn't want to uh, distress Avraham, she didn't also go to Yitzchak because she didn't want to distress Yitzchak, that they uh, if once they finally did overcome the infertility issue, to then have complaints about the pregnancy uh, she didn't want to have that be introduced to the uh, dynamic and so therefore she had sought God elsewhere Adonai La, and indeed, we see that God responds to her, uh, not clear whether it's directly to her or through the oracle through a different Navi, uh, that there are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from your innards shall uh, burst forth, uh, will separate, and one people from the other shall prevail and Rav Ya'avod Sa'ir and this phrase has caused much difficulty because we are missing some grammatical uh, piece of the puzzle normally we would have Rav Ya'avod Et sa'ir, or Vela Rav Ya'avod Sa'ir or Rav Ya'avod Lat Sa'ir uh, any types of uh, clue in which direction uh, these words are meant to be uh, understood however the text leaves them ambiguous and seems to be intentionally ambiguous uh, the two different readings are Verav, the great, or the elder, Ya'avod Sa'ir, uh, will serve the younger, meaning that the younger is going to be the greater. Uh, however, that seems to be some type of internal contradiction. Uh, if we're not referring to the elder as Bechor, but instead to as the Rav, uh, why is it that he is referred to as the Rav? He should be referred to as the Bechor. The Bechor, Ya'avod Sa'ir, might have gone off better, but if we're saying Virav the great one, uh, is going to uh, serve the younger. It ends up that the younger is actually the great one. And well, in, in, because of that difficulty, perhaps really, "Verav Yavod Seir" means that "Verav," uh, the great one, the elder, "Yavod uh, Seir," the younger, shall serve. The younger shall serve him. And therefore, it sounds that the uh, elder here is going to have the younger one working for him, which is exactly the opposite of the first translation. Uh, These difficulties with the uh, translation of these words uh, also are something that plague Rivka. Uh, However, it seems to be that, as we will see later on, that she has had some impression of which way it should go. Uh, But right now, in terms of where the text is explaining to us what God's response is, uh, the idea that there are two separate nations, they are uh, within her womb, they seem to be struggling to separate. It uh, doesn't seem to understand why there's this need for separation. Uh, the Midrash, when it talks about the actual internal struggles of the children on the previous Pasuk relate, uh, Rashi brings down that the, uh, when, they would, when Rivka would pass by the Midrash then you know, Yaakov would be wanting to get out and they'd pass by Abu Zara, and Yesav would want to be coming out. And so it seems to be that they are uh, attributing character traits to the children in utero uh, that don't allow them to be compatible with one another, therefore they need to find their own independent space, and therefore they're looking already to separate. them. when people separate, they get their own space. And her days came were full for uh, coming to be birth. Her she came to term, and now and behold, there were twins uh, within her womb. And it seems to be that the word "vihine," and Behold, she has uh, twins in her stomach. Means that she hasn't really shared the content of her uh, prophecy or of the oracles through the navi uh, with uh, her surrounding people. Uh, for if they already heard that there were two babies struggling within her, they would have already understood that they were twins. Um, however, being that it's vehinnet, the me vehinnet, surprised, it seems to be that Rivka hasn't shared the Nivua it's not clear whether she shared it with Yitzchak or not. Uh, more likely than not is that she had kept it to herself. Uh, again, perhaps to uh, prevent any type of uh, mental anguish that there are going to be some type of struggle uh, within her or, within the, or between the children once they are born. And if they become into two separate nations, what kind of nations will they be becoming? Vayetzeh admoni, kulo se'ar shemo esaf. And the first was born, uh, came out ruddy, red, like a hairy mantle, all covered with hair, and they called him Esav. And afterwards, his brother emerged, and he was holding the heel of Esav, And therefore they called him Yaakov, the language of Akev, of a heel. And Yitzchak was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. The text has held back uh, the amount of time uh, that that Yitzchak and Rivka were struggling with infertility until after the birth of the second child, uh, when Yaakov emerges uh, from the womb. It is 20 years from the time that Yitzchak marries Rivka until they have children, Throughout that time, they are praying to God. Uh, there's no attempt for any surrogate motherhood that we had already seen between Sarah and Hagar, and as we will see later in regards to uh, Rachel with Bilhah. Uh, but here, Yitzchak and Rivka just stick it out with their prayers for 20 years. Uh, it seems to be a very difficult period, not knowing how and why the blessings of God uh, are not coming true why it is that the blessings that Abraham gave are not coming true, uh, but they are praying until their prayers are answered, and that gives us more of this backdrop about why it is that Rivka is hesitant to share any distress points about the pregnancy, uh, now it was a successful pregnancy, uh, coming to term. One of the things to point out is that we have a ideological explanation for what the name of uh, Esav is, it seems coming to coming from the language of Asui, he's completely formed, he's done, he has so much hair on him. And while the mention of hair is absent in regards to Yaakov, and we later see that Yaakov himself refers to himself as uh, His brother is the hairy one and he is uh, smooth, uh, it's interesting to note that it must be that uh, if it's true that Yaakov was holding on to the heel of Esav, that they were monoamniotic, meaning they shared one amniotic sac, which means that they must be identical twins. Now, there's no other way for one infant of twins to be holding on to the heel of the other if they're not sharing the same amniotic sac. Uh, how is it then that we have some different attributes for uh, identical twins and apparently, scientifically, it's possible that if the uh, uh, splitting of the cells uh, after the uh, uh, the two uh, embryos are formed uh, take place, there are opportunities for different genetic uh, dispositions to be developed and while we call them identical twins uh, there might be uh, certain elements that are not identical in this case, it will seem that it might be their hairiness, that might be one difference between them. Uh, the Reggio will later say that the difference in hair appearance is only in regards to grooming. It's not in regards to the uh, presence or absence of the hair. It's only that Yitzchak might feel later Yaakov and realize that it's not the same type of hairstyle that Esau has, but that they both have a, a, a lot of hair. Um, either way, one of the points that might be made here is the entire uh, system of primogeniture of the great importance that's been placed on the Bechor throughout the ancient Near East, Uh, something that's uh, been preserved to some degree in many of the points in the Torah, at least in the stories in Bereshit, certainly there's the struggle about whether or not the Bechor has a special status by being Bechor We see later on in Sefet Varim that the Bechor is supposed to get Pishnayim. We know this also from ancient Near Eastern texts. We know that there are privileges, but they also come with responsibilities uh, in order to take over the clan, in order to run the family finances. Once the head of the family passes, the Bechor is looked to as the authoritative figure. Uh, They're the ones who are going to be entitled to more because they are responsible for more. However... Uh, being that the case, it's not something that is necessarily inborn and uh, determined at birth. Even though biologically there is only one firstborn, the status of firstborn, the legal ramifications of being a firstborn, uh, seems to be something that can be contractually uh, dealt with or uh, referenced by a particular, by a parent, by a father. We see Yaakov doing it later with Yosef over Reuven. Uh, we see it also in regards to perhaps uh, Yaakov with the grandchildren of Menashan and Ephraim. Uh, however, uh, we also have ancient Near Eastern parallels that allow us to understand that this was the case. In the Nuzi documents, there is situations where uh, one uh, brother is selling his future rights to the firstborn, uh, privileges to his brother for some present value, for some sheep right now, Uh, And so it's something that seems to have been a legal status more than a biological one. By having Yaakov and Hestav be identical twins, uh, perhaps the Torah is uh, challenging the idea of primogeniture being based on biological firstness uh, when you're dealing with a case of twins, which makes it much more difficult to justify uh, the choosing of one over the other for the few seconds difference. Uh, in their birthing pattern. Throughout the Torah, we see different aspects of Bukhor. We see them in regards to Bikurim, to Rashi Tagez, to the Bukhor Adam that's being, uh, going be in the going to be redeemed, the firstborn of the animals of the Din of Bukhor that needs to be uh, sacri- given over to the Kohen. And it seems to have this quasi Kadosh status. We know that originally the Bukhor, the firstborns, were the ones who were supposed to be working in the Mishkan. Uh, until later they were replaced by the Leviim. And so it seems that there is a uh, push-pull in regards to identifying and legitimizing the firstborn status as special throughout the Torah. uh, We started with it, but we got rid of it. We used the Leviim instead. The Bechor, it's not a Korban really, but it has to go to the Kohen. You're not allowed to work with it. It's like a Korban. Uh, We have Bikorim, which are Uh, agricultural products that are also not regular korbanot. They are brought towards the mizbeach. there's hagasha, hanafa, but there's no actual burning the fruits on the uh, mezbeach. And so therefore we're dealing with categories of kedushah, of special uniqueness that belong to the first of whatever it is, and on some level the Torah is telling us that we afford them this special category, but at the same time their status is always subject to change, it's possible to do pidyon. it's possible to replace them, um, they're not fully korbanot like everything else, that has kedushah, and so it might be the message of uh, we acknowledge that the firstborn is a default for uh, authority within the family, however, it's not something that is an inborn trait that is going to dictate who is going to carry forth the line. Uh, continuing with our text, ish atzayit ish sadeh, Yaakov Ishtam, Yoshev Ohalim. The children grew up, a Sav was someone who knew the hunt, he was working in the field, Yaakov was a Ishtam, whether it's a complete person, a simple person, an innocent person, the word Tam here lends itself to a number of meanings, but it seems to be meant to be in some type of contrast to the term Yodei Atzayid, because we see that the final end of the pasuk is Yoshev Ohalim, which describes the habitat where they are... uh, Growing up, Yaakov is in the tents, Esav is in the field, so it seems to be that the Ishtam is being contrasted with the Yodea Tzayid, uh, some type of innocence as opposed to the conniving uh, treachery of the hunt that uh, needs to be undertaken to be a successful hunter. And Yitzchak loved Esav because the game was in his mouth, and Rekal loved Yaakov. Uh, it's not clear whose mouth it has, what kind of game in it. Uh, most Mefrashim understand that Yitzchak is being fed the uh, fruits of the labor of Sav's hunt, and therefore the game is in the mouth of Yitzchak. In my book, Jacob's Family Dynamics, I try to explain why it is that Yitzchak might have this affinity towards the tsaid, the smell of the barbecued meat might be something that is... Uh, associated with his being relieved of his impending death at the Akedah. when he smelled the ram being burned on the altar, perhaps while he was still bound uh, and before he was freed to go, he associates that smell with his freedom and his life, and therefore it's something that he enjoys tremendously, and Esav is tapping into that unknowingly. Uh, Rivka's love for Yaakov is unconditional in the Pasuk. It's something that is listed here without a reason. Uh, it seems to also be another type of contrast we're presuming these contrasts because they're juxtaposed one to another Uh, and the text goes on to explain to us the situation where perhaps Yaakov's innocence is something that uh, is more being developed into some cunningness Yaakov was cooking up a, a stew and Esav came from the field and he was tired the word for cooking and stew uh, has the uh, sound, uh, uh, the phonetics of Yazid Nazid, it sounds like Mezid, uh, some type of purposeful activity. Uh, some people want to read into this that it is Yaakov's intention uh, to wait for the utmost opportunity time to be able to try to get Asaf to sell him the birthright. And he finally came up with the right plan by cooking up this food as Asaf came back from the field tired. And Esav told Yaakov, cram my maw with all this red, red stuff because I am tired. And that's why they called him Edom, because he was someone who was looking at the Adom of the red. And Yaakov said, Sell to me today your birthright. And Etzav says, And this statement of Esav could also be something that he uttered to himself or in his mind, uh, or it could be something that he relayed orally to Yaakov and he said, I'm about to go die. Uh, why would I need the birthright? This statement of Esav about about to go die, uh, seems to be some type of an echoing back to what it is we heard from Rivka, ken uh, but it also is something that is related to Esav's nature as someone who's involved with the hunt. Every day he goes out into the field with dangerous animals. He doesn't know if he's going to come back. Uh, He doesn't know if the animals will devour him. And therefore, he doesn't need this long-term pension plan of the B'Horah. Indeed, now, if uh, Yitzchak is somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 70 or 80, if uh, Yaakov and Esav are in their, their teenage years or 20s, uh, Yitzchak is about to live for another hundred years, and therefore uh, it's going to be a long time before anyone can get any benefit from the status of firstborn. And so, why should I hold on to it for the next X ex- amount of years uh, in order to benefit from it? Let me get the stew today. Uh, and Yaakov said, Swear to me today, and Esav swore to him, meaning they're going to uphold the deal even after the day the, the food is exchanged. And Esav sold his birthright to Yaakov, something that we mentioned before, that even though a biological fact of who is firstborn, the rights and the obligations that are conferred upon that individual are things that can be transferred by contract, agreement, or uh, parental uh, preference. And Yaakov gave to Esav bread and the stew of lentil and he ate and he drank and he got up and he walked and he deserved, despised the Esav, despised the Bechorah. And the way that the text is set up it leaves us with the ability to explain that Yaakov did not sell the birthright for the stew and the bread. But rather, it was an independent sale where the stew and the bread was just a formality that is associated with closing a deal. Uh, We see this later on in other situations as well, where uh, the the meal is considered the uh, consummation of a sale, uh, where the consideration is something other than the meal. And so, till here, pasuk lemit Gimu would basically be: "According to Cholatol Yaakov, Esav sold the birthright to Yaakov for whatever price they agreed upon, and." Yaakov gave to Esav all of this food in order to uh, officially close the deal in the formal sense. And the rapid succession of verbs of Vayakom as Esav as Robert Alter points out, represents this uncouth dispatch of which Esav is ready to jettison the Vechra. It's not just some even keel decision about now versus later. He is ready to also despise the denigrate the b'chora, And so this entire section gives us a lot of the th- running themes that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, indeed, all of this is basically uh, trying to fill in what we were not able to fill in uh, in the Toldot of Yitzchak by just coming along and saying, Oh, the Toldot of Yitzchak ben Abraham, uh Shemot Yitzchak, Yaakov Ezav. Uh, we don't know why Yaakov is first, and they saw he was the firstborn. Why is Yaakov, Why would Yaakov be the Bukhor? And we don't know with well, the names of children, because they weren't so quick to come. We have to know the backdrop to the story about who's supposed to be first. It also gives us the idea of the struggle already within the womb between the children, that that's going to continue. We see their disparate uh, habitats that already put us in this idea of uh, they're going to uh, be in separate domains, so while they both share the same family, they have different habitats, different areas where they grow up, uh, different parental affinities to each one of them, perhaps where is Yitzchak is admiring of Esau's ability to be in the field, where perhaps Yitzchak is more of a passive uh, person, however, it could also be that Yitzchak feels that he does have this affinity with Esau because of the uh, hunt, and that Yitzchak identifies himself as in Ish Sadeh, right? But Bas if not and Rivka is Ohabit because he's Yoshev Ohalim. And in the past Rivka is Esheta Ohel. She's been taken into the Ohel uh, formerly of Sarah And therefore Rivka is a dweller of tents as well. And so she has the affinity of Yaakov. Perhaps they spend the most time with each other in their relative habitats. Later on, uh, Rivka is recorded as having connection with Esav. Uh, there's definitely ability for her to hear what's going on with Esav uh, when he's going to later threaten uh, Yaakov's life. Uh, we also have Esav's Begadim HaHamudot with Rivka. So Rivka's connection to Esav is existent, it's just not as accentuated as it is with Yaakov. Uh, in contrast, we do not have any indication of Yitzchak's connection to Yaakov. Uh, to some extent, he obviously knows his son, the question is how well uh, it might be argued that while Yaakov grew up as an Ishtam, uh, perhaps now when he conducted the sale and he has the Yazid Yaakov Nazid, as Svi Grumit uh, points out in his book, uh, that it might be that Yaakov has changed his character and he's already developed the side to him of also being uh, somewhat conniving and it's something that Yitzchak perhaps did not pick up on. Uh, As we move forward onto the next sections, we're going to continue with the stories of Yitzchak. We're going to see how Yitzchak copies or follows in the footsteps of Abraham Avinu, but at the same time also striking out his own territory and his own path in regards to his continuation of the Covenant.